From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I would advise those listeners who have a kind of spiritual curiosity and also a psychological curiosity to start to put two and two together and to recognize that so often the great spiritual masterpieces are in fact talking about inner space. They're talking about interior feelings, emotions, thoughts, and some control over them or understanding of them in a way that feels holistic and good as opposed to light and empty and often bad. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which came out in 2001, and he's also a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. Michael Scott Alexander, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I think that this is a very apt book for my listeners to pay attention to because you are writing this book both about and from, at least at the time that you were writing it, from the midst of positions of deep crisis, let's say. And it could be midlife crisis, it could be reevaluative crisis, it could be uh, existential crisis. There's lots of ways in which you traject that landscape in your book, Making Peace with the Universe. But I'm interested, first and foremost, if you could help us to understand what was it that sort of led to your writing this particular book? And we'll, we'll talk about the structure of the book as our conversation goes on. But let's start first with what was the moment out of which you knew that this was the book that you had to write? Well, for years, like you, I've been teaching religious studies in front of intelligent students for a long period of time. And, and so often we have to stand up in front of the classroom and explain how religion is so often used as the crassest justification for racism and sexism and sexual phobia and these days nationalism. And so I did reach a, a, a professional moment in which I was asking myself, is this of any value to students to know or to learn about? For so long, I'd basically been putting my own questions, my own spiritual questions between brackets as I stood there as an objective observer of the phenomenon of religion. And it didn't feel right. It didn't feel good. And at the same time, I did have this spiritual curiosity that I had felt that had brought me into the business in the first place that I'd been asked to put brackets around. And so I decided to take some time to put my other research projects to the side to see if to go back to some of the spiritual wisdom and the classic text that had brought me to the field in the first place and to see if there was anything there that was personally orienting. Because I was on the backside of 30, and 
standing in front of classrooms where I did not quite feel I was serving some function or purpose. And I and had personal things going on, my, on in my life as well, as all people do. Life does pile up on you, on all of us in the midst of difficult family situations. And really needed to take some time to go back, go back to the classics that had drawn me and that had piqued my spiritual curiosity in the first place that had brought me first into the college classroom as a student and then finally as a teacher. Let me make sure, first of all, that I'm hearing you correctly. So you were effective as a teacher. You were communicating intellectual knowledge. But if I'm hearing what you're saying, you didn't feel like you were connecting and I don't even know the words. Did you not feel like you were connecting with your students on a heart level, on a soul level? Was it that you didn't feel like there was some sort of wisdom beyond the intellectual tradition that you were conveying? What was the lack there that you were discerning? It's just that so much of it is an explanation of the political effects of religion, or rather the, the, the emergent effects of institutionalized political religion. And it just was not what brought me to the subject in the first place. And I felt that it probably wasn't what had brought most students to the subject in the first place. For me, I had first been introduced to texts out of my own curiosity, whether it was, I don't know, the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Luke or, or whatever they were. And they just were increasingly in the background in my teaching life and wanted to return to them from for me, from my own point of view, to sort of ask myself why I was I had been drawn to them in the first place, and and I guess be a little less analytic about it, more to see the wisdom in them, because wisdom is not necessarily an intellectual process. It's a process of feeling. It's a process of finding something in the world that resonates with something inside, almost like the, the tuning of a guitar fork or a, a tuning fork in which. One, the hitting of the fork makes a string resonate even at some distance from it. And wisdom works like that in that you read something and it almost reminds you of something you already knew. And I wanted to get back to that. I wanted to get back to the wisdom part of the traditions that I now knew inside out from a political point of view, from a sociological point of view, from an anthropological point of view. And none of that was helpful to me personally in my as I approached midlife and was wondering what I was doing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest is Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at University of California, Riverside. He's the author of Jazz Age Jews, which came out in 2001, which was the winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. You said something just a moment ago that I want to return to. You said wisdom is a process of feeling. And one of the things that came to me again and again as I was reading your book, Making Peace with the Universe, is how exactly as you're saying, when we talk about this deeper tradition, what we might call wisdom, and you look at a variety of different voices communicating wisdom through the ages, what struck me again and again is how embodied this wisdom is, how various people are calling us to pay not attention only to our thoughts, but to our feelings, to even our taste. And so I want to ask you for to elaborate a little bit on this notion of feeling as a source of wisdom, because I think sometimes, particularly in the West, we don't think about it that way. How can feeling help to guide us to wisdom? Well, I mean, 
the economists are far ahead of us. So the advertisers have known for years that text and logical demonstration of a product is not necessarily why people buy a product. There's a kind of a feeling intellect, a kind of a feeling attraction, that an aesthetic that uh, draws someone to something. And what, I mean, what greater arena of the cultivation of feeling than the great religious and spiritual traditions of the world. Religions or spirit or spiritual expression has been the forum for the cultivation of feeling for the longest period of time, specifically the feeling of the weight of the world or the significance of the world. Religion's the forum in which people have been thinking about and cultivating the mediation of that feeling that the world has weight and meaning and significance. And it is something of an intellectual process. It's not to take the intellect out of the process, but it's, there's a lot of feeling that goes on in it. The walking into a church, the, the whole structure of a church is organized so that one's attention is brought upward. Often you walk down the middle of long pews and there's light streaming in. Just the organization of a typical church is very uh, feeling-oriented as opposed to intellectually-oriented. And really, if you think about it, before the printing press, that's how religion was mediated. It was mediated through storytelling, which is a kind of an aesthetic experience, but it was also mediated through art and architecture and all kinds of arenas of feeling and aesthetics as opposed to the cognitive processes. And wisdom rings into, it may ring into both arenas of both the cognitive and the, the affective, the feeling area, but the feeling is very powerful. And for me, it was neglected, frankly because of being in the academy and reading a lot of books, uh, I had lost track of the feeling uh, part of wisdom and, of, uh, and, of, and frankly, of significance. I, I don't like to use the word significance or meaning because they're so cognitively based. There's so much, you know, what, signifying something, something else. One thing mean points to something else. Some, but feeling doesn't necessarily work that way. It's just a rush of emotion upon looking at a painting or hearing a song or being in a circle of people chanting together or banging a drum together. These things are not necessarily intellectual processes, and yet they really can both bring people together and also bring them connected to something, to the feeling of something more, something beyond themselves. This is really fascinating, and thank you for talking a little bit about entertaining kind of these questions that I'm asking you about uh, intellectual and affective or the feeling side of wisdom. I'm curious, as we're moving towards our first break, I want to ask you a little bit about the process of how you came to go to a publisher and pitch this book, what it was like to say to a publisher, listen, I would like to write a book about existential crisis and the kind of moment that many of us are in where we're pivoting from daily life to these bigger questions, but I want to do it by going back to a 2,500-year-old Greek and an, an Islamic philosopher, a person who counseled Genghis Khan, and a, a jazz musician from the middle 20th century. What was that pitch like, and how did you shape this so that the, the publisher could understand the journey that you wanted to take readers on? The, the breakthrough that I had for myself and for the book, and when, when I decided to turn it into a book, was I realized that so many spiritual confessions that I was utterly familiar with and are as well, that so many of them had been written after someone had suffered a personal freakout in their own lives. And because religion had been the forum 
to orient oneself in the times that they were living, that's where they turned. And because they were geniuses, they were able to write down the experience of finding orientation and be able to pass that on to the traditions. And in fact, became canonized in the traditions because they had been so eloquent. And so I realized that religion was therapy before there was modern therapy. And that these classic confessions that I knew so well were, in fact, case histories, narrative case histories, self-reported case histories of people who had to a real crisis in their lives in which they had no capacity to take the next step forward. And there and decide to return to the spiritual curiosities that many of them had felt as children and, or in youth or in adolescence, but had pushed away as not being an adult activity an adult fascination. They finally returned to it and in, and in fact ended up curing themselves and putting themselves on more stable grounding. So they, they had done something which is really quite obvious, which is they went looking for spiritual grounding and they found it. And in the cases that I selected, I did not want somebody who had declared themselves to be a god. I did not want or was seen that way. So there's no case of Moses. There's no case of Jesus or Muhammad. These were all normal people who had faced real crises in their lives, whether it was addictions or bodily demise or just bad marriages or all kinds of things. And they had nowhere else to turn. So they finally turned back to the curiosity that had had been, they'd wanted to itch for so long, but had never thought it to be legitimate. And I think that that holds the book together, even though it is multi-denominational, You're right. It was a difficult book for people to understand because it's not about how Buddhism will save your life or Christianity will save your life or anything like that. It's I do treat all of them as human beings with a basic human. Some people have a a basic instinct for spiritual exploration and they have a and many people have a basic spiritual curiosity. And that's what I wanted to explore. Now, I'm not non-denominational in the sense that I'm some kind of a a scientist that wants to pick out and decontextualize these people from the traditions that saved them, because they were each of them saved typically within a, a, a tradition that was important to them. But what I did want to point out is that the spirit of spiritual adventure coursed through all of them, through different times and different locations. And that ultimately these heroes of mine, these people that who had written these amazing confessions or had produced effective pieces such as a jazz mass, the jazz pianist, that they had found themselves. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair of Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which came out in 2001. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries, 
one click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this program, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you can find close to 10 years worth of these kinds of conversations, all for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which came out in 2001 and was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. Before the break, you used an interesting phrase. You said that oftentimes these kinds of religious responses to intellectual crises were a sort of therapy before modern therapy. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to expand on that a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by, in this case, what is therapy in that sentence? What do we mean when we say that? Before the advent of modern therapy, where you could go to a counselor, religion was the forum in order to find orientation in, in one's life. And when I realized that, had, that had been the function of religion for the confessions that I had been so familiar with, I decided to look to see, first of all, if that was true what kind of therapy might be achieved by them? Was it, was it based on a specific pathology or was it more integrative and holistic or homeostatic? And, and how was it different from contemporary therapy? And I, first of all, was not the, I'm not really the first to have to thought about this, obviously. The great founder of religious studies in the United States was William James. And he, in fact, was among the confessions, as it were, that I had turned to or realized had been, in fact, works of therapy. William James was not just the founder of American religious studies, but he was also the founder of psychology and in American psychology. And in his, as he approached age 40, first of all, this is occurring in the 1880s and the 1890s, as he approached age 40 and was at Harvard and had no book manuscript and had never written a book, and was years late with it. He was also in a bad marriage and was going through some personal troubles of his own. And in fact, among the research that he was doing in his office was sucking down canisters of nitrous oxide and calling it research. So he was in a sort of a hard way. And at that point, he started to return to some of the spiritual classics that he knew about from his youth and to read them with some seriousness. He ended up publishing, of course, The Principles of Psychology, which is still cited in the scientific and even the neuroscientific literature. So it was a masterpiece. But then he continued to think about religion. And really, most specifically, its therapeutic effect. Does it have the capacity to, to take impossible circumstances and make them possible? 
which is not to say that, that it would change the world in any way, but it would change the person in their viewing of those circumstances. And he decided that in, there were times that it was effective and it went through several cases in his masterpiece, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is still assigned to students, of course. But it hadn't really, that point of view had not really been explored to my satisfaction in the hundred years intervening. And so I did want to revisit that from a 21st century perspective and really focus in on the therapeutic aspect of it. For He was more generally interested in the psychology of religion, and I was really uh, interested in the positive psychology of it, which is, the, what can this be of help and of use? And th- th- that's as short an answer as, as I could give to that. I, and I really appreciate that answer. Let, let me see if I have this then. So at the time that William James was writing, there had been a century of revolutions. There had been a hundred years before the American Revolution, then the French Revolution. So there was a way of changing external circumstances when something is not working. And so changing the world around you so it more fits your vision or your utopian sort of ideal. But what I'm hearing you saying is that the opposite side of that coin is not the revolutionary but the therapeutic. And the therapeutic is not, I'm going to change the world so that it more fits my temperament, but rather I'm going to change my internal temperaments so that I can better adapt to or live within the circumstances of the world. Now, when I phrase it that way, do I have it right or would you say it in a different way? I think you've got it not just right, but right on. So what Freud called the id is in contemporary neuroscientific parlance, it's called the limbic system. And it is a part of the brain that we share with lizards. And it is largely autonomic, meaning that our impulses go directly through the brainstem and out to the body before you even know what's happened. And, and that limbic system is the system that says, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need more sex, I need more whatever those impulses are. And the thing about the limbic system that is, is that it was built among circumstances of complete scarcity. It was built in the circumstances in which you needed as much of those things, food, sex, as you possibly could get. And so there is no cap on the limbic system. There's no cap on the instinctual drive for more this, more that. And the limbic system faces a cold and harsh universe also, right? There are scars, continue to be scarce uh, resources. And the world is an extremely difficult and violent place. And spirituality does seem to have developed in some hope of putting a cap on the power of the limbic system to overtake the entire person and for those impulses to overtake an entire person. And what you've described is how I see the function of spirituality. It's to put some limitations on that id, to use the Freudian language, and also to put some perspective and context on a part of our brain or our mind that is not ever satisfied. It's coming to some grips with the fact that there is no there is no satisfaction. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it almost sounds like your thesis is not simply that religious and spiritual experiences are a good corrective to existential crises, but if I'm hearing you correctly, we wouldn't have religious and spiritual experiences if we did not have this deep reality of existential crises in the first place, of limitation, of threat from a cold universe, of those sorts of things. Am I hearing that connection correctly? Does, it, does the DNA of religion and spirituality go that deep in your way of looking at this? 
I I think so. That it's a it's a mechanism by which our by which we can gain some mastery over those very animal instincts. Which isn't to say that animals don't sometimes possibly share spiritual impulses as well, because there actually is evidence of gorillas have been ob- ob- observed celebrating next to a waterfall, singing and dancing at the view of a waterfall. So there's it may not simply be human, but there are. I think there had developed in primates and maybe in other mammals mechanisms to rein in that impulsive limbic life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which came out in 2001 and won the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. We've been talking about the idea of therapy generally, and the idea that religion and spirituality arose as a response to a kind of cold and threatening universe that was full of existential crises. And in the framing of this book, you go to some of the heavyweights of spiritual and the wisdom traditions. And in particular, you start with the Greek philosopher Socrates, but then you move through Islamic philosophy and Taoist philosophy and Catholicism. But I wonder if we could take each of these in turn and ask a little bit of why you chose each of these and what wisdom and value you learned from their particular response to these existential crises that we're talking about. So let's begin with Socrates. What does Socrates teach us about this changing of the internal state that is your model of response to a cold and indifferent universe? First, I would say to readers, if you really want to read a spiritual masterpiece, pick up or find on the internet the Apology, Plato's uh, depiction of the trial of Socrates. It is unbelievable. It's one of the great spiritual documents ever written. It's because he was on trial for claiming to have what he called his daemonion, which was his, his divine something, his divine voice. He was famous for going through the streets of Athens and asking everyone the question, how, are, how do we know what we're supposed to be doing with our lives? The question in, in Greek is arete or excellence. What is excellence? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And how does one achieve that? And as he tried to find the answer to his question logically, he was constantly disappointed by the answers and could not come up with an answer himself and basically came to a kind he never quite articulates a conclusion that logic is not helpful but he never finds logic himself to be helpful in that question of what i'm supposed to be doing with my life what is excellent what would be an excellent life be and and yet he does offer an answer to how he himself seems to lead this excellent life of honesty and goodness and integrity and intellectual perseverance. And he explains it to the jury quite uh, explicitly. He says that ever since I was a child, I have a voice that comes to me. It's a a kind of spiritual voice. Uh, And it never tells me what to do. It only tells me what I shouldn't do. It only says no stop, don't. And as I read that, I realized, first of all, I've got that voice. And many people probably do have that voice. And where does it come from? 
And why does Socrates consider it a divine or daemonic voice, that which seems to come from somewhere else? And that aspect of it felt real to me as well, because at three o'clock in the morning, I'd, it's not, it, it, although it's personal to me, and it may be different for different people, it is not alterable by me. It's not subjective in the sense that I have control over it. At three o'clock in the morning, I wish that I did have control over my daemon, my daemonian, my personal voice that's telling me, no, you're a screw up. This is messed up. You shouldn't be doing this. But And, and yet there it is. And so when I read that, I realized that my own looking in the mirror was so often improved when I listened to the voice. And this to me was one of the clearest and earliest examples of conscience and, and a discussion of potentially the divine origin of conscience in a human being. And divine simply means seeming from somewhere else, seemingly not from me. And also that which seems to also align with a kind of reality, which is that if you listen, if one listens to the voice, or at least I can only really speak for me, when I listen to the voice, my actions feel right. And when I don't listen to the voice, I hear about it even more. So that's what really appealed to me. And I wanted to explore this, this stuff that's often in the philosophy department and, and, and looked at from the point of view of logic and reason. I wanted to return to the arena once again of feeling, the feelings that one gets when one hears. And, and for some people, it may not be a voice. It may be a feeling or a gut feeling. It may not be articulated specifically in an interior, the words no, but my gosh, you, you, you feel it, or I feel it at least. Now, I want to make sure that, that I'm clarifying for listeners that when you're using this word daemon, we're not talking about demons or demonology in the sort of Christian horror movie sense. We're not talking about evil, malevolent, supernatural beings, but instead something closer to, as you said, maybe conscience or that gut feeling. Now, first of all, as I do that clarification, have I got that right? That's right. So the ancient Greeks considered eros a daemon, which is the feeling of erotics, right? The erotic feeling. They considered it, and many people have this, I know I have it, which is that a, a feeling that overcomes you, I need that in terms of erotic, it's as though it, you don't have control over yourself. It's as though it's coming from somewhere else. So the Greeks conceived of that as a daemon, as a spirit that, that guides a person. Now, what strikes me about this 2,500-year-old Greek concept is how it resonates through, and I'm, I'm thinking now of the Catholic St. Ignatius Loyola and his way of, of decision-making, which was to literally test the spirits and listen to what your body and your feelings were telling you with these kind of holy yeses and holy noes. Now, when I make that kind of connection, does that seem like it's on solid ground to you, or is there a fundamental difference between this kind of listening to the daemon that Socrates was doing and the kind of testing of spirits that someone like Ignatius Loyola was advising us to do? Listen, one could get involved in the details of the and cultural differences, but to my mind, they're talking about the same thing. And I would advise listeners, those of the, those listeners who have a kind of spiritual curiosity and also a psychological curiosity, to start to put two and two together and to recognize that so often the great spiritual masterpieces are in fact talking about inner space. They're talking about interior feelings, emotions, thoughts. And and some and some control over them or understanding of them uh, in a way that feels holistic and good as opposed to light and empty and often bad. 
Now, I've got a degree in philosophy amongst my schooling, and I've often heard this term eudaimonia as a sort of uh, goal of Greek philosophy, that the whole point of the practice is to reach eudaimonia. And it wasn't until I read your book, Making Peace with the Universe, that I had ever had the etymology of that word unpacked for me. And if I'm remembering correctly what you said in your book, Making Peace with the Universe, eudaimonia is basically saying those voices in my soul telling me no are now quiet. The voices are quiet. Do I have that right? The prefix eu and the English prefix eu, eudaimonia, eu means to be well with, and daimon is the spirit. So it literally means to be well with the spirit. It's to be well with the guiding presence that's telling, to have still, yes, to have still silence with the spirit. That's that's my interpretation and understanding of what Socrates was trying to say. What I love about that is, as you say that explanation, I'm hearing in the background of my mind that old spiritual, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so this ancient Greek concept of having peace with the voices, with the daemons inside of you, that is a through line that travels not only through pagan philosophy like Socrates and Plato, but it, it becomes embedded in Christian philosophy and in, I guess, the Western spiritual tradition. is. Am I correct in seeing that through line? And Julian of Norwich talks about all will be well and all will be well. Yes. Yeah. It's a through line in human spirituality. <laughs> it's a human, you know, the Taoists call about, talk about stillness and clarity. It's, it's a through line of human spirituality. I, I know that in the, in the 21st century, it, it's difficult to be ecumenical and to bring all the traditions together. And I do very much respect human differences and cultural differences, but Ultimately, we do basically share the same genetic codes, have very similar feelings and emotional lives. And I'm just not surprised to see these kinds of insights from around the world and also through t throughout time, because even genetically, we're not that different from people 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years ago. They are us and we're them, which is why I've the, the book, to a degree, was a, so almost a reaction against the hubris of the modern world to imagine that we can, that there's nothing to be learned from the great world traditions regarding therapy and the care of the soul. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of interviews and shows that you can listen to for free at your listening pleasure. Today, we're talking with Michael Scott Alexander. He is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair of Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. And today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. Before the break, we were talking about the ancient Greek wisdom tradition and the beauty of Socrates making his defense in the Platonic dialogues for why he believed and sought after the answers that he sought after. But Socrates is not the only voice that we encounter in your book, Making Peace with the Universe. I was very happy to be introduced to an Islamic scholar, Abu Hamid al Ghazali. But I'd be interested, because I imagine that listeners have heard of Socrates, but I'm imagining they may not have heard of al-Ghazali. So if you could tell us a little bit about who al-Ghazali was and why he became important and his thought became important to your project. Once again, I did structure the book so that readers could actually refer to the originals. And like that would warm my heart the most if people would actually simply pick up a copy of his Deliverance from Error, which is his autobiography. He was a lawyer. He was the top lawyer in the Seljuk Sultanate, which was the in the glory and of gold in golden age of Islam. He was the top lawyer in the Sultanate. So he was the equivalent of I don't know the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was very young. He'd been given that position when he was thirty-five years old. We're talking about the year about eleven hundred A.D. Ten ninety-five is when he has his crisis, and. In 1095, so he was doing well for himself and had a lectureship at the, at the top university speaking about Islamic law and the state. And in his lifetime, when he was 35, suddenly almost every single top member of the administration, including the sultan and, and figures surrounding the, the sultan, or died. And most of them were murdered, and some of them suspiciously died. And the great Seljuk Sultanate, which stretched from India to Turkey and Palestine and into the very edge of Egypt, fell apart. It fell into a bloody power vacuum. And our jurist, Ghazali, had a, a crisis on his hands. First of all, had he been part of the problem, or was he part of the solution all of these years? Had his law been building up a society that was stable and in service of God, or had his work actually been doing the opposite? He didn't know. And so he took four or five years to try to sort out that question. First, he turned to philosophy, and like Socrates, came to a poria, or basically a, a, a limit to what philosophy could achieve. Almost 500 years before Descartes, he essentially conducted a Cartesian kind of a, a inquiry in which he questioned everything, absolutely everything. And this is really remarkable for the Middle Ages. And this was before the European universities were established. He went through a kind of Cartesian moment in which he, he questioned absolutely everything and found much of it to be wanting and decided to finally, as I was trying to say at the beginning of our discussion, 
he had a kind of spiritual curiosity that had brought him into the service of God and the law uh, in the first place when he was a young person. And those questions still were in his life, but he'd always pushed them down in a way as not being realistic or not the work of adults. He decided the heck with it. I'm going to now go do some of that investigating. And for him, that meant the investigation of Sufism, which was a, a fairly, not that new, but a fairly new and not popular offshoot of uh, mystical. It's a, it was a mystical movement within Islam. And so he picked up from Baghdad and ran away. He really, as an adult, ran away from his job. He ran away from his wife. He ran away from his children because he had heard that in Damascus, there was a preacher and, and teacher of mysticism there. And he wanted to finally learn what he'd been reading about in books his whole life, which was the extinction of the self in God. He didn't, we wanted to know what that meant. And so he went to Damascus to learn the Sufi techniques and did it. And it changed his life. And he, he went and learned some Sufi techniques, which were very simple meditation techniques that are very much like a mantra that are from Hinduism, but the Sufis have their own techniques. And it was a kind of emptying out of the mind and a coming to a place of clarity and stillness that he cultivated aesthetically again and, and brought it back with him for the, re and for the rest of his life. He dedicated his work to trying to write down the, he wrote a, a large compendium of insights, which he, which he cut down for his countrymen in, in Persian, wrote in Persian, a shorter version called The Alchemy of Happiness. So it's essentially the first self-help, self-positive psychology book, certainly in Islam. And it still has insights today that are all absolutely fascinating. And it's a great handbook of how traditional therapeutics worked. Uh, he's, he's basically my intellectual hero and of anyone that I've ever read. And it's been at this point, it's been a lot. I don't mean to be immodest. You spend enough time teaching and, and learning about this stuff. You end up reading a lot. And Ghazali to me is just, he went to the end of the mind regarding the intellectual capacity of the mind. And when he found that to be wanting, he kept going and, and was able to turn his life around. Now, what's fascinating to me is, first of all, if listeners are unfamiliar with Sufism, you may have heard of some of the famous mystical poets that come out of Sufism. Probably the best known is Jalaluddin Rumi. But also, if I'm not mistaken, the Sufis were the ones who, and forgive this characterization, but are oftentimes referred to as the whirling dervishes. In other words, they would have practices where they would take their bodies and they would spin and they would spin and they would spin. But what's fascinating to me about this is, just as we've said earlier in the conversation, you're talking about about practices of wisdom that go from the head into the body and into movement and into physical practices. And I'm interested, how did Ghazali talk about this movement from the head to the heart, from the head to the body? What was the importance of feelings and affect and embodiment for someone like Ghazali? When he went through his Cartesian analysis of what is it that I really know, and I guess we shouldn't go through the technical steps of it, but basically reason got thrown onto the floor as that which is that which cannot be trusted. And human reason is quite faulty and logic is quite faulty. We tried through human reason, try to understand the Schrodinger equations and the cat being in two locations at once. It's, it doesn't, human reason can't understand or, or conceptualize 
things, implications of reason, and, and there are other problems with it. So he, that's a larger discussion, but basically he, throw, he puts reason aside and wonders to himself, what is it that I can lean on? And what he decides he can lean on is his own feelings, the feelings themselves. He names this taste. He's not the first one to name a taste. He, he picks it up from uh, Sufis before him, which is an analogy for the literally the taste in the mouth. And he uses the explanation quite often, which is that if one wants to understand sugar, one doesn't go ahead and describe this chemical formula or talk about the shape of sugar or the texture of it and feel like you understand what it tastes like. You have to put it on your tongue and taste it. And then you have an experience of sugar and nobody can tell you what that taste is because you've already had, you've had the taste. And he, he extrapolates this to all things, but especially he extrapolates it to the taste of God. What can one, that's the Sufi question, can one experience God? And that's why he, when he understands that intellectually, that reason can't get you there, that you need to do certain practices to try to get to these experiences, that's when he picks up and goes to Damascus to actually learn the techniques so that those experiences or tastes can happen in his own body. And really the rest of his life is an attempt to talk about the experiences and tastes as one walks through life, not just in meditative mode, but as one walks down the street and breathes and interacts with one's children and all of those things, that becomes his fascination. How the world essentially becomes reborn to him and everything becomes revelation to him because every single one of those things, every one of those experiences he now realizes is as, first of all, it's his own private and personal taste. And secondly, he also recognizes that every single one of them is provided by powers that are well beyond himself. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Nault. Our guest today is Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of Jazz Age Jews, which was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we're talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. I want to jump ahead in your book, Making Peace with the Universe, because you also talk about a 20th century figure, Mary Lou Williams. And what was fascinating to me about Mary Lou Williams is that she comes out of the jazz tradition and moves into the Catholic tradition. But I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about Mary Lou Williams and why she was important for your project. So this one's the most personal because I went to the jazz archive at the University of Rutgers in Newark, where she kept her papers. She was a pack rat and she, she was a diarist and wrote everything down. And there in her papers was the handwritten record of her meltdown. And it was, a, I had a, a visceral reaction in watching someone's own hand describe their own falling apart and coming together again. So to give you the background to who she was, she was the piano player in the Andy Kirk band in the 1930s. And that was, and was a competing band with, with Benny Goodman and all the other great bands of the 1930s. And that was a remarkable thing for a woman to be an instrumentalist in a traveling band. And, who, and the piano really holds down the whole thing. So in the 19, as a young person in, in her 20s, in the 1930s, that was her job. In the 1940s, she moved to New York City and became the teacher and godmother of the piano talent in New York City that was developing into bebop. 
namely a Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk. Both of them were the students, essentially, of Mary Lou Williams and had long and affectionate uh, relationships and intellectual and piano relationships with those two giants. So she was a grand master of the piano. Miles Davis always wanted to record with her. She was really in there. Her, she was best friends, essentially, with Dizzy Gillespie. And in 1954, after the Second World War and much of jazz, her, her colleagues in jazz had succumbed to heroin and a really degrading race scene and drug scene in the United States and a nightlife scene. She couldn't find work. She went over to Paris uh, in 1954. And at age 44, from the piano stool at a gig that she was playing, she walked off. She simply walked off the stage and could not go back. She felt that uh, she had premonitions that her friend Charlie Parker was going to die. And in fact, he, he very soon after did die. And her friends were just falling around, apart around her left and right. And she had a crisis regarding her career, which is that it had led, in her view, to nothing, to the demise of all of her close friends. And she left the piano. Somehow, some, one, she made it back to Harlem, really with the help of her friend, Dizzy Gillespie, and also Hazel Scott, who was a pianist at the time and also a Catholic. But Mary Lou Williams was not Catholic. She was, she was Baptist, African-American, and had just, in Harlem, in her period of retreat, started going to different churches and trying to, trying to itch that spiritual curiosity that she had felt as a child, but never had really been able to give permission to as an adult she finally gave permission to it. And one day walking around Harlem on a Tuesday or a Wednesday when all the other churches were closed, she discovered something that's really remarkable about the Catholic Church, which is that the doors are open whenever you can just go in there and have a private conversation with God. And she started to do that. And then after a while, she started to listen. And she decided to convert to Catholicism in her 40s. But she still didn't want to go back to the piano. But it happened that Vatican II came to be in the early 1960s, and preceding it, the Pope canonized the first African-American, St. Martin de Porras. And so one of Mary Lou Williams's priests and friends and teachers suggested to Williams, would you like to write some music to celebrate the first canonization of an African-American saint? And it clicked in her mind immediately. And she wrote a, a masterpiece called uh, Black Christ of the Andes, which is a six minute long piece. And she put out her first album in years and it's, and it's pretty remarkable. But from that point on, she decided to dedicate most of her life to writing jazz masses. She wanted to take the swing form that she knew so well from her youth and that she knew so well to bring people together as a, you were talking about the whirling dervishes, there's nothing quite like swing to, to get everyone riding the same wave of energy in the same direction. She wanted to harness that in con celebration of a Eucharist ceremony inside of a church, bringing all the aesthetic elements together for a very powerful Eucharist ceremony and communion and dedicated her life to writing these things and presenting them. And she even tried to get it presented at the Vatican as a Eucharist, which she was not able to do. She was only allowed to do a, a, a kind of a concert of the material. They wouldn't allow her to do a con celebration there. But she was able at St. Patrick's in New York 
to do a, a real con celebration. It was the absolute highlight of her life. And the thing swings like crazy. There isn't a stitch of Bach or Schutz or there's it's it, the, the thing is a jazz mass. And again, if I'm going to, if people wanted to listen to something, go ahead on Spotify or wherever you get things. Mary Lou's Mass. The thing is just unbelievable. So as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, we've been talking about these figures from history who went into their own crises, their own existential breakdowns, and they found their own method of therapy. And you talked about how this book was in some ways your own sort of going into an existential crisis and looking at others to try and find your own moment of therapy. And so if you're willing to to talk to me about this for a moment or two, where are you on that journey? Have you found your therapeutic moment? Do you feel like you're still in the midst of crisis? Where are you with regard to spirituality at this point? It's an integrative therapy as opposed to a pathological one. In other words, you don't go in and cure this thing or that thing. It's a, it's a new way of looking at the universe and your place in it. And, and it's never permanent in the sense that it's not like you've just reached a promised land and it's over, but it's a process and, a, and it's something that one needs to remind themselves of uh, every day and in every difficulty. So since the researching of the book, I now take the time every day to remind myself of the miracle of existence. And, and I know the alternative. We all know the alternative. And to and not to take it for granted. And so I take the serenity pledge every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and I recommend it strongly. And I'm I I uh, am in a much better place, I have to say, after than before. You know what they did for me, these people? They gave me it's amazing, David, because we both have PhDs in this field. I felt like I needed permission to go ahead and explore my own spiritual curiosity, even though I was sit standing in front of a classroom for 20 years. I still felt like, is it okay to go check out my own? And what was amazing to me is that William James felt the same tension and Al-Ghazali had the same doubt about his curiosity and Mary Lou Williams certainly did. And all the cases, uh, they all had the doubt and they all said, you know what? I don't care if I make a fool of myself. That my spiritual curiosity is something that I need to explore. And they gave me that permission for, to, to, and it's been really good in my life, I must say. And, and in a sense, I wrote the book so that people could, to give other people the same permission. That if they have, if there's one thing that I would like your listeners to, to, to come away from this is that I don't have a specific w- way for them to go forward in their lives. Because they're all in their different places and come from different traditions. But I do say this, that if you are a person with spiritual curiosity, you should follow it. It is not silly. It is not trite. It does change people's lives for the better. Michael Scott Alexander, I have to say... Your book, Making Peace with the Universe, I found it challenging because it's a very honest book. And I found it incredibly rewarding because of the depth of the ways in which you go into the lives of these persons and the ways in which they interrogated this question of spirituality, meaning, wisdom in the face of existential crisis. I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk to me today about the book, and I know that my listeners will benefit from it. Thank you very much. 
Yes, and thanks for your own work of putting so much great stuff out there in front of people to learn about. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Michael Scott Alexander. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Maimonides Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of the book Jazz Age Jews, which came out in the year 2001 and was the winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Today we've been talking about his recent book, Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. We're out. Thank you again. Wow. You really did get to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good book. It it was fun to talk about because it's a book that's very worth talking about. That's really amazing to hear. And you're right that the pitch to get the thing published was not that easy. Mm, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't fit in a genre. But nevertheless, it's in the world, and hopefully it'll get into the world. And are, are you thinking about continuing in this vein, or are you spent on this subject and, and you're going to move on to other things? I'm, I'm both, if, I, if that's possible. <laughs> I'm done. I think I'm done with, with religion in particular, and I've now become very interested in the fact that we are now doing psych- psychiatric interventions with it, surgical, surgically. Mm. So I became really interested in the brain stuff when I became involved with this. And over the course of this summer, they did. They started doing the first surgeries for depression, and mm. I'm going. To, I'm looking into that as a next project. What does that mean that we're actually being able to do surgical interventions for personality issues? So that's next. Fascinating. When you're done with that book, I hope that you'll consider sending it back my way. I'd love to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have a good Thanksgiving, and please do stay safe. <laughs>